But actually, like, I think there are so many cases where if you're mixing the tuna with, like, A, like a ton of your own really good olive oil, if you're, like, making your own salad dressing, or if you're mixing it with, like, a ton of mayo for a tuna salad, the added olive oil isn't really necessary. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Yes, it's Anna Hazel Day on Taste, and we welcome back our old colleague and friend to catch up about not just tinned fish, but what she's been up to since signing off as co-host of this very show. Her new cookbook is an instant classic, and you should go out and buy Tinned Table today. Also on the show, we have a great talk with Evan Hanser. Evan is the founder of Tables of Contents, a home for delicious gatherings at the intersection of food, literature, arts, and culture. We also talk about the reboot of his Brooklyn restaurant, Egg. I hope you enjoy these conversations. Anna Hiesel, what I can't introduce you. You used to host a show. This is Anna Hiesel, former senior editor of Taste. Anna Hiesel, welcome back to the building. It's so good to see you. Thank you for having me back in the building, Matt. Nice to be here after almost a year yeah. since my last Taste podcast. I can't believe that. It was a year when we were taste testing through bootleg Reese's. Uh, yeah, this is a good opportunity just to make a public apology for eating so <laughs> many peanut butter products like on mic. That yeah. was really gross it in was retrospect. So and I'm just really sorry. Well, we have new listeners now. I, I welcome all the new <laughs> listeners who don't know who the fuck you are. It's, it's like new people. They're like, who is this Anna Hazel? I welcome them, too. It's so nice to meet you all. Okay. But in all seriousness, for real, for real, um, I want to talk about Superiority Burger. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So Superiority Burger, they've been doing some friends and family nights. Yeah. Much anticipated opening. They're not officially open yet. But it's still somehow like the hottest restaurant in New York. It's insane. I, so the joke is that I've literally been talking about this since like Akira Kudo was here six months ago. Like we've been and clowning on the whole thing. And, and Brooks uh, was going to be on the show. And he was like we were he was booked. But then he like stopped returning my emails. Oh, no. So now it's just like a meme. Um, hi, Brooks. So uh, how have you had food or are you waiting for the opening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I went to like a little preview night the other night. It was really fun. It was like the whole restaurant was packed with like food magazine editors <laughs> and like ex like hardcore scene people. So it was like give us a report. Who who's there? Full scene report. Um. Well, I'm not gonna name any names because it was just like you know friends and like colleagues and stuff and Anonymous like and like friends and family. Okay. Yeah, right. and and musician like music people who I didn't recognize, but my husband Dan recognized. Okay. Mark Eibald was he there? I'm sure. No, I didn't. No, I didn't see him. <laughs> That's actually. funny. I'm like sure. Mark Eibald from Pavement was probably there. <laughs> he probably he probably went to one of the openings. Maybe I don't know. I'm sure he went to several. Um. But what's the food like? What can you say? It's really fun. There are a lot of familiar menu items that you'll recognize from the old location yeah. on 9th Street. Great. Um, really exciting, big dessert menu. A lot of vegan options. If you have vegan friends in town, definitely take them there because yeah. they're really fun desserts. They're doing like a really cool a funnel cake that's like on like a little bed of blueberry jam with some with like a little scoop of maybe like coconut ice cream on top. That's nice. It was really good. Really awesome desserts. Is there like a soft serve of the day, like a machine that's rotating? They have rotating gelato yeah, flavors, gelato. but um, I'm not sure how how frequently they're changing them. Got it. And it, and the the burger sitch same. Yeah, same burger. Like few different. Uh, New and improved sandwiches and sides. They have a bar now, which is, like, crazy. Mm -hmm. They never used to have drinks or, like, even anywhere to sit no. or plates. Or they cups. literally didn't have a restaurant. They had a counter and very uncomfortable chairs and, yeah. you know, a, a lovely human being running it. Yeah. And so— Oh, also the bar. Okay, this is really, like, the—I I buried the lead about the highlight of this. The bar has one of those, like, Japanese-style um, highball machines. Love it. Yeah. So get a highball if you can. Yeah. Care. Great margin on a highball, too. Great, great, 
Wait, you were just in Japan too. Did you drink some highballs? I definitely <laughs> drank some highballs. Yeah. It's funny. I got back and my husband instantly started looking up uh, like gadgets for making clear ice so yeah. that we could have like our own little highball bar at home. Oh, that's amazing. Um, we will get to Tinder Table and legit, like I, I really mean it, one of my favorite books of the past couple years. Huge accomplishment for you. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but first, look, you're, you moved to Epicurious. You left Taste. You went to Epicurious. I, I, I love the move. I'm, I'm stoked. What, what are you up to at Epi? What's, you, I know you launched an interview series. I know you've, you've written some great features. But what's going on there? Yeah, it's been a really fun last year at Epicurious. In the fall, we launched a new app. Which, like, this is not an ad for my employer. It seems but like it. You got, like you're, you're leaning you into the ad. <laughs> it's not an ad. So that QR code you're wearing on your shirt is... <laughs> uh, you got to download the Epicurious app. <laughs> Even if I didn't work at Epicurious, I would definitely use this regularly. It's, like, more than 50,000 recipes... You get the whole Bon Appetit archive. You get this whole archive of original Epicurious recipes, cookbook recipes, and some sick gourmet magazine recipes that are hard to find anywhere else because the magazine is no longer in print. You were always a fan of the app. That's legit. And also, (laughs) you're a fan of gourmet. You wrote a piece, I think, last Thanksgiving where you looked at old gourmet from the yeah. 70s and 80s, yeah. 90s, 70s and 90s. That's another really exciting cool. thing about working at Epicurious, getting to like dive into the archive a little and seeing kind of like what all of these magazines have published in the last hundred years that can kind of be, we can take a second look at or take some new photos for. Um, that's been really fun. Amazing and, magazine, great ideas. Did you ever get it? Like is, is one of Ruth's old expense accounts in the archive? Can you see that? Not that I have found. <laughs> not that I've found. I, mean, I think you have to check out her memoirs for all of that. I love gossip. Yeah, Ruth is the best. I mean, and really gourmet to be able to mine from those magazines and, and publish is, is a real dream. Must be cool. Yeah. Is there like an archive room? Yeah. Condé Nast has like um, their whole print archives in a building separate from the office that's like very climate controlled um, and you can make a if you're an editor, you can make appointments to go visit and like check out certain materials, which is really fun. Very cool. I mean, um, I want to talk about your interview series. You've been you've been interviewing book uh, cookbook authors and chefs and others about uh, their grocery shopping habits. What what what's what's the um, mission there? The goal? I love it. Yeah, it was kind of this opportunity just to talk to people that I'm interested in talking to, like uh, Marie Kondo or the actor Harry Shum Jr. or um, the author Ruby Tando, who's written for Taste, of course, and just hear a little bit about what their grocery shopping routine is because everyone's is different. Everyone has sort of like little grocery shopping or cooking habits that they're maybe a little embarrassed about or sheepish about or that they think are goofy. But it's fun to hear about what everyone's little quirks are. I love it. It's a great read. We've linked in the in our um, newsletter, and I'm, I'm going to link to in the show notes for sure. Thank you. Uh, all right, Tinder Table. I think you wrote about Tin Fish on Taste when you're an editor here. You but. you think it's you act like <laughs> e- every single editorial meeting was not me just like oh tin fish yeah it's true Anna's talking about tin fish and lasagna again. too back to that one <laughs> yeah um but but for real uh let's just go back to the beginning because I don't think I've ever asked you like what got you interested in tin fish as a topic to explore not just in, with recipe development but culturally too. I think, I mean, this is going to be sound like such a cliche, but I think like visiting Portugal for the first time and like going to a bar where you get a really nice bottle of wine and like a can of fish and it comes with just like a hunk of, you know, warm bread. And like that's kind of a snack that you can buy at a bar. I think that kind of showed me that this category of ingredients that Like, I've been eating since I was a kid, you know, canned tuna, canned clams, those standard grocery store items. Um, Just that, like, you could look at those through sort of different eyes and sort of see them as luxuries. Mm -hmm. 
and sort of, yeah, like find a little moment of celebration in these common pantry items. Yeah, I really buy that. I think when you open up a, a tin of cockles or, or sardines and you it has that really rich fat and it feels it just it feels like a little luxury. And, it, you know, these things cost under 20 bucks. I mean, let me ask some you, of them. Some of them can cost like 60, 70 no bucks. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole, it's like, it's like wine, you know, yeah. you could spend a lot or a little. Let's go into the actual book itself and the research. So were you out there uh, buying tinned fish for research for, for this book? How did that work out? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, the, basically the second I got the go ahead from a publisher to write this book, I uh, just went kind of like nuts at every grocery store I could find um, and like friends were so awesome about bringing back tins from trips mm-hmm. or like if they spotted a brand that they hadn't seen elsewhere, just nabbing a can for me. Um, so I just like built a huge collection. And also that was like a fun part of the book process when I was procrastinating, like actually writing just to go shopping. <laughs> go shopping. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and there's so many great spots in New York to buy tin fish, right? I mean... We've got a great city here full of boutique grocery stores. Where, where, where are you shopping at here? Yeah, uh, Despaña in Soho oh, yeah. is a favorite. They have some really great Spanish brands, especially of tin fish. Um, and I only discovered it recently because I think it's a newer store, but Mercado Central in like Cobble Hill area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's new. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think they have, I think they claim to have like the largest tin fish selection in New York. What about these upstart brands, these, these direct to consumer internet brands? I feel like there's a couple, I mean, Fishwife is definitely the one that comes to mind, but there's others. I don't want to just say they're the only one, but there seems to be a moment on like the internet where people were selling and buying fish that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, like, Fishwife did a really interesting thing in that they sort of, like, bridged the direct-to-consumer trend with this, like, trend of buying specialty European conservas. Um, And so they were able to, like, do a cool thing, which is source the actual fish from all over the world. Like, at, at some point they were working with, like, Alaskan salmon Mm -hmm. for their tin salmon and then they're getting their anchovies in Spain and they're able to sort of like pick products from all over the world that way. So, I mean, it's like a curatorial lens that they're taking. I mean, they're not, they don't own like a fishery. They're actually like finding great conservas and bringing them back and repackaging them in a sense and just like offering their followers great products. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's like a lot of grocery store brands of tin fish actually work really similarly yeah. where they're like they're working with aquaculture, you know, like farmers or like canneries all over the world mm-hmm. to source their products. Fascinating. So Ortiz, I love Ortiz. Is this a, a legit brand? I, I love the, the label, obviously, but I, I do love cooking with it. If yeah. I'm going thinking about tuna, obviously. Yeah, I love Ortiz. Yeah, um, their anchovies especially are really great. Ooh, they do nice. like, a, I want to say it's called like their grand select selection. Like they're like specially selected I want to see you anchovies. on a boat making these grand selections, Anna. I feel I, like you need I to be doing this. I too would like to see that. <laughs> I would like to be on the boat. Like you're like basically like nodding your head and like no, yes, no, yes, no. I can just see you too. <laughs> I would like that. I would like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, th- I mean, their stuff is great. They're Bonito del Norte, which is like their, like, you know, the standard tuna that you yeah. might be buying is also just like really solid. What's the biggest can of tuna, or sorry, biggest can of fish you've ever bought? How many ounces around or how big? Oh, um, actually, when I shot the photos for my book, I I emailed Ortiz and they generously sent a tin of anchovies like to shoot in the book that was like the size of like a pizza almost like it was like <laughs> a very so large Ill. round tin wow. of anchovies what did you do with all the anchovies we actually opened the tin for our wedding sweet and served <laughs> them at the wedding because it was like you know the largest tin of anchovies oh, yeah. you've ever seen <laughs> but if you yeah if you look in the book at like the i think it's the recipe for the anchovies with the vanilla butter 
you'll see the photo of this enormous tin. I want to get into the recipes a little bit at one point, but also I can't let it pass. You mentioned canned salmon, and I feel like canned salmon gets a bad reputation. I know tuna is much, it's like superior, but give me some ideas for canned salmon that you're writing about in your book. Yeah, well, I you might remember I wrote a feature for Taste about canned salmon. I definitely remember that. I hope it's (laughs) being used in the book. Yeah. In a cool way. Yeah. I mean, what I realized when I wrote that story was that there's like this whole new reemergence of really cool canned salmon products. Like canned salmon is just one of those things I've seen in the grocery store forever and always been a little bit gross. Yeah. Gnarly. By. Gnarly as fuck. Like ske- yeah. skeezy stuff. Yeah. I just picture like, you know, pink, white like fish floating around in water. I don't know. It's just gross. But there's like all these amazing brands now that are doing like really, really like beautiful salmon packed in olive oil or like slightly smoked salmon or like even slightly grilled salmon packed in olive oil. Yeah, that's So there's like this whole range of actually really cool things people are doing with it. That's really, really Interesting that there's a grill and then a pack. Is that is that common with other seafood? The grilling and then packing. There are a few brands that are doing it, like um, Fongst in. Uh, they are a Danish brand. It has that Danish like hardness to it. It can be German too. I'm just like hearing <laughs> that in your name. Yeah, <laughs> the way you say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're doing a few grilled pieces of fish that they're then packing and then there's like there's a spanish brand called guillemar uh which was started by a restaurant in spain that specializes in grilled seafood and they're doing all these like amazing char grilled you know grill smoked Mm -hmm. seafood that they're then canning i love that your book is organized it's just like really smartly organized you've got the beginning from front of it is the different categories and and offering some product suggestions and you get to recipes at the end. Super dope. Um, I want to ask you about the tuna melt recipe. How did you land on the tuna melt recipe? I've made so many tuna melts, especially, man, during the lockdown days. Yeah. Early COVID days. (laughs) Yeah. Tuna melt energies. There, there was such, there was such a long period of time where like celery was the vegetable that I always (laughs) had because it lasts for weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've made a lot of tuna melts and there are a lot of good tuna melts out there. Like I'm never going to get mad about an open face tuna melt on like a bagel Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, whatever bread, like a an English muffin is awesome. Yeah. But yeah, the one in the book is on rye, which I just think works really well because it's like not going to get soggy. Yep. It's like very crisp and crunchy. And I think just like the flavors complement the creamy mayo really well. That, now, let's step back a little bit. I agree with the rye statement, by the way. It's great bread choice for tuna, obviously. But going back, you have kind of this perfect tuna salad recipe. It's like a flow chart. It's really fun. I love it. Take us through that one. Yeah. Yeah. That, the basic idea is like you don't really need a recipe for making right. tuna salad. Like Smart. You have a can of tuna. You have mayo. And then you could mix in like chopped up pickles, some minced pepperoncini I like sometimes, yeah. some fresh herbs if you have them. Some little like pickled shallots, maybe. Oh yeah, nice. So or, I'm like, hearing scallions. So I'm hearing t- tinned fish, t- tuna, some kind of fat, mayonnaise, and then some kind of pickle, and then maybe something astringent like a raw shallot or pickled. And then can you use dry herbs too, or is it fresh mostly? I mostly just prefer fresh. I think like the one exception is like I lo- I love the kind of uh, tuna sandwich you get at like an Italian deli where they like dress the bread in like some kind of Italian dressing that's like full of that like dried oregano yeah. flavor. Yeah, like the it's like the cold cut combo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dressing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, but I yeah I usually just stick with like whatever fresh herbs I have or like fresh. Crunchy, oniony things. I grew up or in New York, at least my young days. There was a deli near my apartment on Avenue A that did the most dill-heavy tuna 
I still think of it as the best tuna way to do it. Then, you know, you should put dill in your Thanks, tuna salad. Permission to dill. I, I appreciate that, Anna. It's good shit. Um, guest recipes. Really cool list of people there. I love it. Like you're reaching out to all your friends, but also give us a couple of these guest recipes and what was the prompt for them? Yeah. Well, okay. Konbi, which I know you've had Akira on the show before. Yeah, a couple times. Yeah. yeah. Akira, Akudo, and Nick Montgomery, who are the masterminds behind Konbi in L.A., which recently sadly closed. R.I.P. R.I.P. Um, they contributed a recipe for the Konbi milk bread tuna sandwich, which is really cool. And... I mean, I, I kind of like sleuthed on the internet and found out that Cone B had served a tuna sandwich at some point as a special. And oh, that's yeah. why I reached out to them. But then I learned that like the actual process of making the sandwich is also so genius. Like they take just like standard water packed tuna, drain it, and then they like marinate it overnight in... I think it's, I'm trying to remember what the recipe is exactly, but they like, I think it's like a combination of soy sauce. Oh. And. Oh, look at that. And like mirin maybe, yeah. or like some, some like little marinade. Yeah. Was a little bit <laughs> of a just, sesame oil maybe? No? I don't Wasn't think most, so. No oil, I'm no trying fat. to remember. Okay. Anyways, the recipe's in the book. Well, yeah, exactly. Great way to like dodge the question and say like, check out the book. Check out the book. <laughs> yeah, but it's just a yeah. really, it's like a clever recipe and like a cool way to turn a can of water packed tuna that you buy for $2 or whatever into something way cooler. Water packed tuna? Yeah. I'm, a, for sure. I'm oil packed all the way. Oh my gosh. Okay, this is like a big gripe I have with food media. Everyone's Love it. like, let's go. Everyone's like, ew, water packed tuna. <laughs> food media as in me just now, 30 <laughs> no, no, seconds ago. You're you're totally not a, like so many magazines have been like, ew, we're never buying water packed tuna again because <laughs> we learned about this other thing. But actually, like I think there are so many cases where if you're mixing the tuna with like a, like a ton of your own really good olive oil, if you're like making your own salad dressing, or if you're mixing it with like a ton of mayo for a tuna salad, the added olive oil isn't really necessary and like can make it a little soggy even. Yeah. Um, tuna noodle casseroles, I don't like to use oil packed. Like I just think it gets like really like greasy and weighed yeah, down. It's It's gnarly. I mean that dish in general is gnarly. I'm sorry. I, Midwest. I, I know Buffalo is pretty basically Midwest. I just talked to somebody about that recently. I just, that smell, I can't get over. Is it, does that, is that good, good smell to you? Tuna, like warm tuna in a casserole format? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you, you love it. I love it. Like the, oh my gosh. Like the cooked down like onions and mushrooms and like the bechamel sauce. I, it's, yeah, it's, I, it's delicious to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just made the most gagging face. I, 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 sorry, I just can't. It was something growing up triggering. Anyways, moving on. You had amazing recipes, and one I made was bucatini um, with sardines and caramelized fennel. I love that. It was great. Love that. Thanks for making it. Yeah, no, that's definitely. A, that's a favorite for sure. It's a real favorite. Now, I guess my question with that is, I think of, we've been talking a lot about like the salads and we've been talking about, of course, serving it as a, you know, aperitivo or appetizer. But what are some other ways that we can like cook with tinned fish and tinned seafood that maybe we're not thinking about? I often find myself putting it in frittatas just like as like a super busy, like I don't have time to think about dinner or lunch or whatever. A frittata with like some smoked salmon yeah. or smoked trout is awesome. Um, pastas, like constant, like, you know, endless possibilities there. A smoked trout pasta sounds amazing. I think that's really smart. Yeah. Really, really good. Totally. Totally. I also, there's like this recipe wound up in the book, but like there was one night when I just was home alone and needed dinner and didn't want to go grocery shopping, but I had like one potato <laughs> and a lot of tin fish. So I made like a little mini fish and chips serving just with like canned sardines that I battered in like a seltzer based yeah. batter and fried and then just cut like cut up one potato and fried it 
as like yo you know sounds good french fries it was great yeah, yeah. So and just like a, a very compact so dinner from groceries that you don't need to run yeah. out and buy uh, i want to get into some other topics are there any other spring cookbooks outside of your own that you're excited about? I mean, this is your season, so I'm sure you're aware of some of the the books that are being published around this time. Love you always have great takes and instincts about cookbooks, and always brought great ideas to taste. Um, some indie publishing as well, but anybody, any any come to mind? Yeah, well, we were talking about Abra Barron's um, her book. Yeah, uh, Pulp is coming out this week maybe yeah, it's out. I think it will be out by the time the yep, podcast the week we're airs. recording it it's out yep yeah um that book is really cool and really inspiring it just sort of like runs through every season of fruit and like all of the sweet and savory possibilities mm-hmm. for all of these really fresh ingredients it's really cool I also really liked um Abby Bellingit's book Mayumu which is uh like a sweets cookbook um that's really really fun and Mm -hmm. inspiring we ran a story on epicurious about her fish sauce calamansi cookies and this is like is this like a filipino (laughs) yeah i think i think all of uh the recipes are like slightly filipino inspired yep um yeah and she has these shortbread that are like cut out to look like little fish and then they're brushed with like a calamansi fish sauce glaze which really is really cool. cool. Really cool. And Natasha Pickowitz. Yep. These are all like very sweet leaning cookbooks. But Natasha <laughs> Pickowitz has a cookbook out called More Than Cake, which is really fun. I mean, she kind of she's a pastry chef. She specializes in cake. Yeah. But the cookbook really like goes a few steps further and yeah, and takes a look at like sweet and savory sides of pastry. Absolutely. Yeah. Both Abra and uh, Natasha, um, our guest on the show, forthcoming. So excited. Um, restaurants, we have to, we, like, this is what we do if we, like, rolled into the office. We're like, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And I'd just like to know, are you able to dine out at all with all this, like, cooking and recipe development you're working on for your job? Like, what's hot right now for restaurants in your in your world? Yeah. Um, I've been going out a little bit. Uh, I had a really good Dinner at Place des Fêtes yeah. a little while ago. That's like a... Tammy's place. Yeah. It's like her yeah. number one place. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tammy Teclamarium yeah. is big on Place des Fêtes. Yeah. It's really, it's just like really fun. It's like hard to have not a fun time there. That's a great recommendation right there when it's hard to not have a fun, good time. Yeah, yeah, totally. I would say the same thing about Masala Walla and Sons, which I went to like a month ago. Love that really place. Really fun. Love that place. Good calls. Um... Man, I want to know, like, where can I buy your book? Like, for real, indie booksellers are a love of both of ours, and I know you're working with some indies. So where where, where are we going to buy your book? Let's shout out some indies. Yeah. Um, well, I'm working with a bunch of independent retailers who ship basically, like, all over the country who also have really awesome tin fish selections. Ooh, smart. Okay, you're packaging it together great. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, a few shout-outs. Rainbow Tomatoes Garden. Oh, gosh. You probably know about that. If if you know me, you've heard me talk about them. They are um, the largest online selection of tin fish yeah. in the world. A full I- pivot away from tomatoes and now full tin fish now. Right. <laughs> I got that email. Yes, I did. Right, right, right. Yes. Largest in the world. Yes. Um, So, yeah, it's an online retailer. They ship all around the country. uh, Amazing selection. So, yeah, you'll be able to buy my book packaged with a handful of, like, really cool hand-selected tins. I bought— Or you can mix and match on your own. I bought the Anahizel box, like, when you offered that last time with the cool matches— Oh, thank you. I loved those. I loved that. I mean, I was such a fun and honestly, listener, you should definitely buy her book and uh, definitely pick up a bunch of the selections because it really is fun and they don't take much space. Like, let's be real. Totally. Yeah. And a really fun gift for anyone, you know, who likes tin fish too. giftable. Very. Ah, makes, we're coming up on dad's, dad's and grad <laughs> season. <laughs> You knew you and I both say, know. Dads and grads season is upon us. Uh, okay. 
a couple other retailers I want to shout out. Uh, Caputo's, which is a specialty grocery store in Salt Lake City. They ship nationally um, and they have like a crazy awesome tin fish selection. Lots of other cool like specialty groceries. But um, you'll be able to buy my book from Caputo's packaged with like a few other tin tins of fish. And another is Portugalia Marketplace in Massachusetts. Uh, big, really cool Portuguese specialty Sweet. store. Um, and same deal. Like they have they have brands of Portuguese conservas that you can't buy anywhere else in the country. So get your mackerel and sardines there so and get a great. copy of the book. What about hitting the road? What do you where are you where are you gonna be? Yeah, I'm gonna be uh actually at Graner Farms doing a dinner with Aubrey Barons. On June 17th. Amazing. I love that. That'll be, you get to go to the Midwest. Yeah. Shout out to the Midwest. Shout out to the Midwest. Um, Well, that's exciting. Now, you are, I think some of the early press I've read in the previews is like, Anna Hiesel is a master of the single topic cookbook. You've written two, and they're both excellent, lasagna and tin fish. This is not the final question of the podcast. I know you know that one, but let's talk about single topic. Do you you think you're going to do another single topic at some point? I mean, I feel like maybe. I do love just like a very themed cookbook. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we we worked on the lasagna cookbook yep, together. Um, that was well, you uh, wrote it. I mean, it was you, yeah, yeah. Well, it was Anna Hiesel yeah. and the editors of Taste, yeah. aka Matt Rodman. <laughs> I guess so, right? <laughs> yeah, um, it is really fun to just like tackle one theme and like become totally obsessed with it for a year or whatever, and see what comes out of that. But. Part of me also would like to challenge myself to yeah. think beyond these like uh, very niche little topics. Okay, niche rectangular topics too. Ni- they really are niche, and I love how you have the die cut though on this book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful package. Thank you. Nice work. The yeah, die die cut book is a is kind of a coup. Yeah, totally. Good work. Yeah, yeah. It it looks like a can of fish. It does. Unmistakable. Love that. But okay, like, is there a topic, though, that you're interested in, hypothetically, if you were to be, like, approached to maybe write it and it was, like, maybe of a singular focus or topic? Um. Oh, you, you're you asking if uh, if I did another, like, tightly themed like, yeah. single subject. Well, I know, like, when I was at Taste, we were always talking about um, doing, like, a loaf pan cookbook. Yes. Which Forgot was— about that one. Yeah, that was, like, briefly a dream— uh, another like rectangular. Yeah, very I mean the die cut would be perfect for a loaf pan book. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, the cold apps out of a loaf pan in general is pretty exciting. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh yeah, like, talk about Midwest. Oh yeah, totally. Like a seven layer dip in a loaf pan. Totally. Let's go. Uh, you know, shrimp mousse <laughs> aspects. Yeah, all the pan. aspects in a loaf pan. Okay, that's a good one. I like that. You must have more. I'm not going to—I won't bug you about that. Oh, yeah. Okay, another dream is potato chips. Yes, yes, As an ingredient, as kind of like a theme, as like a regional, uh, like, you know, Mm -hmm. oddity that people feel really strongly about. Like every small town, every Rust Belt town has like their brand of potato chips they love. I see. I see it so well. It's—this is it. You have to—all right. Anna, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book. I know you've asked this question to maybe 45 to 65 people. (laughs) Now it's your turn to answer it. What would that book be? I think if there's like unlimited budget, then I think that I just uh, make up a totally fake conceptual cookbook and then just take the check and run and like never hand something in like just travel the world go on a really long vacation such a rogue answer i this is so i'm n- i'm never going to get another book deal like that's like such that a rogue that. i love that you just totally went absolute rogue with that no one will ever answer it that way good so just a vacation yeah, no just book. a vacation. No deadline. No deadline. Because it doesn't matter. It's an infinite deadline. So you're just like, fuck, I'm taking the money. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So great to see you, Anna Hazel. So great to be on the podcast after, you know, too too long apart. Too long Thanks apart. for having me back you're on welcome. the show. We'll, you'll, you'll be right back. I know you will for that Chips book. Thank you. 
Evan Hanser, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about so many things. You are a writer, first and foremost. You're a chef, uh, entrepreneur, an activist. Uh, you've worked with the Beard Foundation and done boot camps. So much, such a great career, and, and I can't wait to unpack it a bit. When did you start cooking professionally? Let's talk about that. I want to get, like, what was that first job like? My first job professionally was, uh, well, I worked in restaurants for the first time in 2005. Uh, I went to school at Tulane University in New Orleans, got there two days before Katrina hit, wow. evacuated. Yeah. Quite, quite a freshman orientation. Quite the orientation, dang. Had to leave for the semester as, as you know, everyone in the city um, did, some people a lot longer. And I started, I went back home, I went to Fairfield University for a semester. My parents live in southwestern Connecticut and I started working in a restaurant, what was it called? Clemens, I think, mm. um, named after... Mark Twain. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I'm sure there was I, some cool uh, Huck Finn paraphernalia around the building. You know, I think there was. They, they didn't commit to the bit any further than the name. Honestly, the inside <laughs> just looked like any other sort of like rural suburban restaurant. Wise of them to do that. <laughs> uh, but I was a, a busser yeah. there uh, and spent most of my time like hanging in the kitchen, trying to see what was going on, sneaking Irish coffees. You know, like mm -hmm. do, doing the things you do when you're 18 and, and working in a restaurant for the first time. But when I got to got back to New Orleans, uh, I'd always liked cooking and, and sort of quickly took myself off the meal plan, started cooking for myself when I moved off campus, cooked a lot for friends. And my last semester there, I was just curious to see what it'd be like to work in a restaurant. And there was a spot down the street from where I lived called Ye Old College Inn, which mm -hmm. I think is still there. And has kind of rebranded itself as a more sustainably marketed, at least, restaurant. But at the time, it was kind of the watering hole after the Tulane baseball games for the locals nice. to come and get tilapia six ways or po'boys and basically my job consisted of cutting soup out of plastic bags and pouring <laughs> into a steam table and yeah. dressing wedge salads <laughs> but um real food service real, shit there yeah yeah I, I mean shit. i saw i saw what was what was happening yeah. from the start um but it was just like a really interesting environment to be in for me and especially you know when you're going to school in a city um especially the school like tulane which yeah. could be super insular you know sort of bubbled off from the rest of the city in a lot of ways to go and work with folks who just you know live live there um was was a really nice um kind of new environment and community to be a part of and when i left there a few months after i i had started because i was graduating moving back moving back home um i thought that was kind of going to be the end of my food service career yeah. it was fun i had seen what i wanted to see I was a writer at the time. I thought I was going to focus on the, the quote, big, important things, right? Yeah. <laughs> writing poems. Sure. Oh, you were a poetry guy. <laughs> yeah, oh, cool. writing poems. Nice. Um, and when I, uh, when I got back home, I started applying for jobs in the publishing world, uh, really sort of um, disconnected from the realities of what that career path would look like. I thought I'd just start as a writer at The New Yorker. Or like, why not? Yeah. Isn't that what, what you do? So, uh, I mean, you could. I guess, I guess you could, but yeah. I, I couldn't was, was the yeah. point. So. No, not many people can, yeah. <laughs> um, I started working uh, at a restaurant in a couple towns over in Westport called The Dressing Room with uh, Michelle Nishan yeah. and uh, thought that would just be kind of a thing to hold me over till I got a job back in, in writing and uh, turned out not to be the, the case. Not to be the case. And I'm so happy that you bring up Michel Nishan. I've gotten to spend time with him and he he's also a chef activist writer, right. multi-hyphenate. Um, he runs a nonprofit called Wholesome Wave and doesn't allow to work with the Beer Foundation. So it's, it you know, you're your own person and we'll get to your career, but it seems like working for Michel Nishan early in your career, also not, not to be forgotten, the dressing room was owned by Paul Newman, the local uh, Westport guy. So, what was that like? Those, 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 those are two really interesting guys to have in your early career. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of it was not really interesting to land kind of on not not the other end of the spectrum necessarily, but in this restaurant that was super sustainability focused yes. in a way that not as many restaurants <clears throat> were at that time. Uh, we would take visits to local farms to see piglets when they were born in the spring and then bring them in mm -hmm. to do charcuterie and, and specials in the fall. Lots of homemade, handmade pastas and all these sauces. Uh, a nice mix of kind of American mm, comforty aesthetic with sort of French or Italian technique. The chef there was this guy, John Holsworth, who had spent time at Felidia and had a lot mm -hmm. of Italian background. And it just really like was was an amazing amazingly lucky place for for me to land um and i think it was while i was there that i didn't fully sort of um 
understand this at the time, but the seed was planted uh, where I could begin to understand the impact of food mm-hmm. in a sort of similar way to the, the the way I thought or hoped I could make some sort of impact through writing mm-hmm. where all these things I cared about and was writing about, um, whether it was identity or family or society or inequity, economics, whatever, mm-hmm. all connected through food in the same way I hope they might connect in some way in my writing. Uh, and I think that that sort of started to make it seem to me that a career in food could both be the kind of beautiful, tactile uh, mm-hmm. experience that it is of working with amazing produce and serving great meals and um, feed, the act of feeding people in hospitality, which I loved, but also be engaging with these sort of bigger issues. Yeah, and I, actually doing the work and, and having some activism and, and also writing. And, and Michelle seemed like somebody who who did a lot of that. Um, I have to ask about Paul Newman. Did you guys chat dressing, salad dressing? I mean, I just have to ask the question. <laughs> I feel like, you know, unfortunately, Paul died not long after yeah. I started at the restaurant. So he came in a couple of times. I got to got to say hello. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think I was really, you know, at the level of having long conversations yeah. with him at the time. But yeah. it was an interesting sort of dynamic, um, yeah, yeah, and precursor or foreshadowing two tables of contents because this restaurant yeah. owned by an actor and next to a theater was uh, that kind of food and art um, mm-hmm. location that, that I, I didn't realize at the time. But looking back, sort of seems like a clear it was foundational in your career. And, and I think like uh, we have to talk about egg before we talk about table tables of contents. I feel like uh, Egg was a restaurant, is a restaurant, will be a restaurant, many different ways to say it, <laughs> but it was quite influential in the yeah. way um, we think about uh, breakfast sandwiches, the way we think about single-topic restaurants, but also just the hospitality, really great hospitality always there. Yeah. So let's talk about your career with Egg. How did you find yourself a, a short-line cook at Egg and then became a partner eventually? Yeah. I mean, it was very unexpected for me. Um, I was working in the dressing room. I ended up working there quite a bit longer than I thought. I thought I'd be there for a few months and mm-hmm. ended up there a little, maybe a year and a half or so. And at that time, my now wife, Rachel, had graduated. We'd also been at Tulane, and we both wanted to move to the city. She's from she's from New York. And I was sort of trying to figure out what the next steps were for me and, and if cooking was going to be part of it, then I had figured I had to go to New York and see if I could hack it there. So <laughs> I actually applied for and got a job at La Conda Verde in its yeah. early days. And... Uh, what a blast Incred- in the past. Incredible restaurant to yeah. work and learn at. I mean, the team there was so strong. Um, they, they had opened not long before I got there. And so all the kind of heavy hitters were there mm-hmm. in the kitchen and it, uh, really Who are you working amazing with? operation. I mean, honestly, I, I don't even remember everyone yeah. right uh, now, but I know obviously Andrew was was in the kitchen yeah. pretty actively then. Luke was there. Um, Carmelini, that is. Yep. yep. Um, Sal, who just opened Cafe Spaghetti last year, mm-hmm. was there at the time. It was a sushi at the time. Min Lee. Um, so a, a bunch of folks who went yeah. on to do a lot of cool stuff. Um, and at the same time, sort of the dynamics of the restaurant, um, I'd gotten so tied into this local sourcing, seasonal food, local farmer connections thing that wasn't as present or forward at La Conda Verde uh, because it was such a big operation. The the thing that was there was just logistics, you know, getting things done at, yeah. at scale and, and deliciously. But it wasn't sort of hitting the the marks that I thought I wanted a restaurant to, to hit for me. So I actually left and I started applying for Fulbright, sort of grad school, thinking mm-hmm. about what I would do next. But I needed to make some money because I just signed a lease and and I found egg on Craigslist. Uh, nice. And what was ba- the description? What do you remember what they what yeah. they were writing for? I mean, the thing that stood out to me was that it was a breakfast restaurant. Yeah. And I basically thought it would be easy. Great hours. <laughs> yeah. I was like, cool. I can work in the morning. I can yeah. write in the afternoons. Yeah. Uh, there was there was language around. Um, you know, all the values that lived in egg from the beginning, which nice. was included local sourcing, supporting small farmers, making a restaurant a great place to work, professionalizing the job, all that sort of stuff. So I felt it would be mission and values aligned and also easy. So I interviewed, spoke with George, who founded egg, George Weld, and um, basically told him in the interview that I, I didn't expect to be there that long, which yeah. is not what you want to hear uh, when you're hiring for a cook. No. But maybe he saw through it, um, knew something about me that I didn't mm-hmm. uh, decide to hire me and and Although I had anticipated only being there for four or five, six months, uh, when we closed in September 2020, I was there 11 years later. Uh, That's amazing. Crazy like journey. You blink and 11 years later, you got a location in, in Tokyo. You've got <laughs> uh, part ownership. you got equity yep. in the restaurant. Um, I don't want to fast forward too quickly, but I yeah. do want to get to your, but, but like, what were those 10 years like? What was that decade? I mean, it's a lot of change in the restaurant industry. I'm sure margins went up and down by the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. do you make money? Yeah, I mean, we made money and we made, uh, I think one of the things we 
I, the way I think about the way egg worked is that we thought of profit in a lot of different ways. Of yeah. course, making money was part of it, but we weren't going to make money at the expense of not trying to pay people well or not sourcing ingredients from people we knew yeah. or not mm-hmm. being a good part of the community and donating time and money and um, products to causes that felt important to us. And I think all those things uh, were a big part of what kept me really engaged. And I was so lucky to land there and to work with George, who was very mm-hmm. similar to me in a lot of ways, also a writer, also someone really invested in food and food systems yeah. and people and community. And basically, it seemed like every couple of years, something really interesting happened. And that was what kind of made the restaurant feel dynamic enough to end up staying there for 11 years. We started a farm a couple years after I got there. We eventually opened Parish Hall, which was a sort of dinner, more fine dining restaurant that I was the chef at. Um, Had that for a couple years. We moved Egg to that location after we closed Parish Hall, which was much bigger and an interesting project. Mm -hmm. We wrote a cookbook. We opened in Tokyo. There's just always something really interesting happening. Kept kept you busy. Yes. But your North Star was equity, was fair practice, was sourcing. And I feel for 11 years, if you go 11 years ago and look at restaurants, that was definitely not. It was not, it was certainly not as common. Yeah, I guess certainly kind of a leader. Brooklyn, Brooklyn as a whole, I think was a leader in some of the early Mm -hmm. restaurants that were adopting and and centering those values. Um, But egg for sure. And especially in in a unique way uh, in that we were trying to take these ingredients that the best restaurants were using and show folks that you could just have them for breakfast every day. They didn't have to be uh, elitist or exclusive. What was the bestseller? You know, the Eggs Rothko was always top mm-hmm. of the list. The omelet, pancakes, you know, one of, the, one of the few places in Brooklyn that served really good grits. So people who wanted grits would come in and get yep. those. I mean, there were some things that were not great sellers, but, you know, when someone came in and we had homemade Scrapple and they knew what Scrapple was, yeah. they'd freak out. So yeah. there and were things really that were sort of too. nice to keep on the menu as well. It was like a nine to three operation? Well, it first started in Sparky's Hot Dog Shop, yep. which was open um, in the afternoon. And George started doing what egg, a blast egg from the in past. the morning, right? Love that crazy. Name. Like early, early Williamsburg, yep. Um, yep. 2005. Um, George started doing egg in the mornings and then it eventually became so popular and busy that he took over the, the whole space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did dinner there for a while. And then we went back to just doing breakfast and lunch when we opened Parish Hall as kind of our dinner outpost. Right. And then when we moved Egg over to North 3rd Street, still breakfast and lunch. So eight to four, eight to three, we, seven, seven to three, we changed, you know, changed hours depending on the day and, um, and year, but always a morning to afternoon place. And then what, the nice thing about that is we had the space available at night to do other interesting things. Cool. So I was going to ask you about that. What's the benefit of doing an eight to three? It seems like there's many of them. First is like maybe um, shortening your hours and, and paying people fairly, but not having as many hours. Also, you have the space at night, so you could do cool events. Yeah. Yeah. I think for both of us, you know, a lot of people always ask us, why don't you also do dinner? Why don't you open for dinner? Mm-hmm. And there are some just sort of logistical reasons, you know, folks associated with us so strongly with breakfast that um, I think it was harder to make mm-hmm. inroads even when we tried as a, as a dinner restaurant, but also just a lifestyle, like not yeah. not trying to maximize every inch of the space <laughs> towards yeah. profit, right? Like let, if we can have a place that's employing people well, uh, that's making us enough money to survive uh, and that's making us happy and also letting us live a, you know, a reasonably balanced lifestyle, let's do that. Like yeah. that's a, what, a, what, a, what an idea in the restaurant industry. <laughs> What an idea. What was it like to close? It was hard, yeah. really hard. Um, you know, I think COVID made it easier in some ways because there's sort of something to point to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I can't even envision what it would have looked like to make the choice to close if that time were to come without some other sort of factor that was precipitating it. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of happened in this fit and start way because we closed temporarily in March. We opened back up for a bit in the summer and then we were just exhausted. You know, we were tired. We, we didn't see a really great path forward. We weren't getting a lot of help from our landlords. Um, and I think we, to, to soften the blow on ourselves, we, we told ourselves we'd start, we'd hibernate. We wouldn't, mm. we wouldn't close so entirely. So at that point you, you kind of felt like it was not going away forever and that there would be reopening at some point, which we're going to yeah. talk about. We were leaving, we were leaving the possibility. Leaving the door open, yeah. kind of like that Michael Jordan, like, you know, retire from the sport. <laughs> right, right. Leave the door open, Tom Brady, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but it's hard to let staff go. You know, I think that's the hardest part. Yeah. Obviously it was hard to leave the community, but a lot of folks came out in the last couple of weeks. We saw a bunch of friendly faces, that kind of feeling of support and that we've done something yeah. good in this neighborhood was there. 
but it's hard to let people go. Some who had been with us for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be, I can't imagine how difficult it is to have that conversation. Um, but there is a, a happy story that you will be opening, but let's talk about tables of contents because I think that's something that you founded, um, around the time that you closed egg. It was actually earlier. We, earlier. we first started doing, uh, did our first tables of contents event, uh, in 2014. So a while ago, and that was, came up because our friends, um, were holding food, the food book fair, which was happening at the mm-hmm. White Hotel around the corner. Elizabeth Thacker Jones was doing it at the time, and Kim Chow and Amanda Dell. Um, and I think Elizabeth came to us and said, "We're doing this thing." Uh, it was around the, uh, I guess, it was around the time Parish Hall was was open. Um, maybe I'm getting my years wrong, but anyway, mm-hmm. she asked if we could do a closing dinner for it, and we said, "Sure, let's let's mm-hmm. put something together." And I had had this thought when I was in college reading The Sun Also Rises that, wow, the, the food in this book is incredible. I wish I could eat and drink like these characters are, wow. you know, through France and Spain. And George and I talked about it and decided to do a, a dinner inspired by The Sun Also Rises. So I think it was a five-course meal. And we had, uh, you know, trout with fiddlehead ferns, which is based on a scene where uh, two characters are, are hiking, I think, in, in near the border between France and Spain and catch some fish and wrap them in ferns to stay cool. Uh, we had a bullfight scene with a tartare and a, and a piece of cooked steak with mushroom, mushroom dust all over that the plate. That sounds so cool. Yeah. We had a perno sorbet at the end. Just every, every course inspired by a specific passage in the mm-hmm. book. And it was amazing. Um, probably partly because People got really drunk because it was Hemingway and had a great time, <laughs> but we had a great time doing it and uh, tried to keep it going. So we, we ended up doing dinners like that every year for a couple of years. Okay. So it was like a yearly event. And and so it never was a crystallized what, what it is today, which is like a, an organization, right? Yeah. And then it started to take a different shape when mm-hmm. uh, a friend of mine, uh, Rebecca Dinerstein, was publishing her first novel. Uh and we were chatting about doing a reading, and I offered the space at Egg just just for a standard sort of reading. Mm-hmm. But then had the thought, why don't we try to make it a, a tables of contents style event? And we got some friends together and planned two months of readings. We had three authors each month and made three small bites inspired by each passage that they That's read. So great! And and what, what inspires you to connect fiction and and cooking? I mean, I think it's kind of obviously the, the perfect intersection between my interest as someone who is a writer and and then someone who found creative expression yeah. um, and sort of purpose in food as well to tie those two things together. And I think one of the things that raised the the connection for me was just the similarity I felt between the two practices of, of writing or any, I guess you could think of any sort of artistic creative practice uh, and cooking, you know, the coming up with an idea, the working it on your head, trying to put it down on the page or the plate, eventually showing it to someone, probably failing <laughs> several yeah. times. Uh, but as I, as I tell folks at, at Tables of Contents events, the thing that led me to cooking was that people were really happy to eat a dish I tried and, and less happy to read a poem I asked them to read. So, <laughs> so yeah. I think uh, food also kind of became the lore. Trojan horse style yeah, into literature. people into literature. I love that. I mean, it's true. I think you need to like offer something more than just a reading sometimes when you're yeah. getting people to turn up in a busy schedule. Yeah, and the hope and the exciting part of it is that when, when each um, element of the equation, when the writing uh changes the context of the food you're consuming. So the mm-hmm. food takes on kind of a different meaning and also eating something that you've just heard described uh, in, in a book really adds that tactile sense to the experience, which you don't get. You took uh, the the reading series um, a step further and you, you wrote a community cookbook yeah. and you self-published. That's right. So I love to hear about that, that process of self-publishing a community cookbook. Yeah. So that was in COVID era. Um, not long after Ed closed, this, this project started to come to life and sort of one of the silver linings of closing. I'm sure the cookbook would not have happened if, yeah. if we hadn't closed the restaurant. And um we couldn't do in-person events. Of course, COVID was all over the place. No one was really gathering. But we still wanted to find a way to bring the TOC kind of idea mm-hmm. uh, in, into people's lives. And it was a crazy timeline that the, the book happened on. Uh, it was the day before Thanksgiving 2020 that I reached out to the first author and had chatted about this with um, Tanya and Shuli um, and Rachel and Jordan, like all the folks who, are, who help out with tables of contents and mm-hmm. throwing around the idea of doing this cookbook. Sent out an email to a handful of authors who had read with, with us in the past. Like, hey, would you be down to share a recipe of yours and write some sort of head note about it, a little story, a you know, brief essay, something, and we can put it together into a book. And 
see if we sell any copies. And it, it sort of grew. We worked with this amazing um, designer, Mariah Rodriguez, who did so much of the work in putting the book together. We ended up getting three dozen uh, past authors to wow. write up recipes and then paired those authors with different illustrators around the country to do custom illustrations for, for each recipe, which amazing. turned out amazing. Worked with Radix Media uh, in Brooklyn, you know, uh, work our own co-op um, publisher um, or printer to put the book together. Uh, and I th- in February of 2021, the book came out. So three-ish months Very from cool. conception And all finish. profits go, to, you're a 501c3, so you go to your... Yeah, we're not a 501c3, okay. but we we also structured the book as a way to support the food justice work I'd been pretty heavily involved cool. in with FIG, uh, which is still doing that work, FIG NYC. And so all the profits from the book, once we covered the cost, went went to FIG. We raised over $10,000 amazing through the, through the book. Very and cool. I thought we'd sell like 100 copies. Yeah. And then we got lucky, it ended up getting picked up. Helen Rosner put it in New Yorker's Best mm-hmm. Cookbooks of the Year, same for Vanity Fair. And we ended up selling, I think we're at like 1,600, 1,700 copies, Amazing. which for a self-published book was way beyond what I thought so was great. possible. And we'll link to that in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. What drives your activism, Evan? I mean, I feel like this is uh, clearly something that is at, you're as passionate about it as food uh, or as cooking, we'll say. Um, but what what fuels you? You know, I think the same sort of thing that got me hooked on food as a as a career path, which, like I mentioned, started the dressing room when I was also reading these sort of foundational good food texts of Michael Pollan, Anna LaPay, Carla Petrini, um, that made me realize how many things that I sort of had an interest or, or care about intersected in food made food seem like a, a vehicle for, for impact work and also that trying to do some sort of impact work beyond making beautiful food was a necessity, a requirement of working in food. And I think, you know, Michelle seeing how he started Wholesome Wave and was focusing on using food as a, as a tool for social change um, was, was really inspiring. Yeah. There were a lot of other folks I saw who inspired me, uh, including George at Egg, uh, through the work we were doing in the restaurant, but also partnerships with different nonprofits uh, whose events we would cook at. And I started to see how that... Um, that impact could happen. And then I got really lucky to take part in the James Beard Foundation's Chef's Boot Camp for Policy mm-hmm. and Change, one of their first um, first um, boot camps that they held back in 2013, I want to wow, say. Wow, it goes back that far. Yeah. I feel like the James Beard Foundation, we talk about the awards, we we snipe at the James Beard Foundation for yeah. making the wrong choice of awards. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of media focuses on that, but we rarely do talk about uh, the, the boot camp, the training programs that they offer. And, and the fact that this goes back almost a decade, please, let's, let's talk about what yeah, that was yeah. like and what has the James Beard Foundation been like for you? Yeah, I think I was... Uh, I would say fortunate to really be introduced to the Beard Foundation. Of course, I knew them as an entity. I, I had done a collaborative dinner at the Beard House once, so had been there and sort of felt the that kind of vibe of, of tastemaker, oh, award yeah. giver um, status uh, that the foundation holds. But I really got to know them at this point when they were shifting a lot of energy towards impact work, towards policy work, towards chef trainings. Uh, and that was fledgling at the time, um, but because of the way I was introduced to it, became my main reference point for the Bayer Foundation, which I think is is different because, like you say, most people think of them as the awards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that the work that they've done, I mean, so many chefs now have gone through this training program. Uh, personally, I felt the impact of it and and saw it among the the folks who are in my cohort and went back as a mentor for a mentor chef for a future um, gathering. And you really see the power um, – of a simple sort of shift in perspective uh, among chefs where they realize the, the power of being a chef, uh, the role you play in a community, uh, and how to try to um, take that and, and impact things that you really care about, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being asked to cook for someone's fundraiser, which you may also be in support of the mission of that, that nonprofit uh, or organization, but to learn how to go and talk to your state representative to your senator uh, to your city council person 
as someone who is also sort of a representative for your community? Completely. You're you're a public figure. You're written about in the paper and and talked about on social yeah. media, and you're you have a very prominent place in the community. You're you're also feeding the representatives and the people yeah. who are you're going to be speaking with. So you have a, a personal connection to them. So yeah. it makes perfect sense that a chef would be the ultimate gateway um, to activism. I, I feel like that's really smart. Well said. Yeah, and you're in a position where you're kind of looking in all directions. You're at this place where you are sourcing and mm-hmm. you're also selling. So you're working with consumers and customers yeah. directly. You're working with producers. Um, some of your customers are political leaders or social leaders. Um, and you can kind of express your influence in all these different directions and hear from these different constituents in a really interesting way uh, from farmers, what they want to be growing or the support they need from customers, what they yeah. want to be eating. Uh, and you can also you know, suggest to customers and farmers here's here's the ways that I think uh, here's some changes like maybe maybe you want to consider in I mean, the way it really you're pushes, producing. It really pushes back against like hothead meathead chef um, <laughs> men, you know, the, the stereotype that we yeah. we oftentimes associate with the cook professional. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've seen, obviously, there's been um, enormous shifts in the way the yeah. industry is is running and, and the issues that are at, you know, on the front burner for, for chefs and consumers and, and food media um, and workers, thankfully. And I do think, you know, for, for the you know criticism that may be accurate at, uh, that's directed at Beard for um, maybe a slower pace of change in the awards than should have happened. Um, I do think there's probably not enough, you know, um, kind of acknowledgement of the work, mm-hmm. foundational work they've done in that. And I just, I just joined their chef advisory board, which they're launching this year as a way to kind of move that, um, industry-led impact work and focus more deeply into the way the organization is led overall. So I do think they're also responding to yeah. the, the criticism that's I've coming I've seen away. it as well, and, and I hope we can have you back to talk about what that means to be on a chef advisory yeah, board. Yeah, sure. Let's get into egg in 2023. You're in okay. the process of reopening egg. Um, so what is happening right now? Man, well, for anyone who's opened a restaurant, you probably can picture what's happening. <laughs> it's been a journey. Um, you know, the decision to reopen was was not a given, although we left the door open to it. Um, I think George and I both felt after such a long time of running the restaurant and as folks who had always tried to work some of our creative impulses and desires into the restaurant or around the life of the restaurant offered, um, that it was interesting and, and nice to see what it was like to live life without waking up in the morning and, and, and wondering yeah. about the many things that may or may not go wrong in a given day at a restaurant. And there are plenty of things that may or may not go wrong in a given day. And uh, I think, you know, in a lot of ways we're on the edge of saying egg had a good run. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're on to the next thing. Uh, and back in the spring of last year, uh, 2022, I was talking to my friend Libby Willis, who had a great Mimi's Diner, um, all too too briefly, unfortunately, uh, on the Crown Heights, Prospect Heights border, and then ran Kit during COVID, which is this super creative, um, really kind of community glue of a space that hosted lots of pop-ups was super and collaborative cool. uh, food, food projects. And she was ready to let go of the space and, and move on to something else and asked if I'd be interested in taking it over. And so I thought a lot about it, what it would be like, what it could be like, and decided it couldn't be egg. Uh, I thought bringing egg back just as egg, same exact menu, same name, mm-hmm. number one, could never deliver on the memories <laughs> that people have yeah. of it as we know. Let those memories right? settle. Let, let those yeah, live. Rest, live. But it could be inspired by egg. It could be kind of a little sibling. And so uh, decided to try opening little egg, mm-hmm. which is what we're in the process of now, which is very much um, rooted in the in the soil that egg, you know, helped to build over the years, but growing in in its own ways. And for me, it's a it's a really interesting opportunity to um, both bring the values of egg back to life and the food of egg back back to life in a lot of ways. But bring in this sort of these other creative interests that I have and sort of community focused interests that I have, whether it's through Fig, whether it's through tables of contents, hosting guest chefs, um, having artist residencies, who, who knows, mm. um, what can happen there. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty open feeling space to, to try a few things out. Um, and to take a lot of things that we're doing informally at egg and, and build them more intentionally cool. into the restaurant. So you're thinking, uh, a daytime only static menu and then some fluidity at night. Yeah. Yeah. I think cool. daytime only, I think we're going to be open only five days a week, which, uh, 
as I just know from the past, even on days off, uh, you're not mentally off if the restaurant's open, you know, and you're not there. Um, and, and try to use the space in the evenings for could be community board meetings. It could be nonprofits, you Mm -hmm. know, just need a space to get together and chat film screenings, you know, guest chef pop-ups. There's Mm -hmm. so many, obviously, I think we've seen a lot of incredible creative pop-up energy, um, really explode during COVID. And I think keeping that going and and sharing the space uh, feels like a really, I know a role I'm really like excited to try try to play. Are you ready to get back on the horse though for these like early mornings and work in, work in service? Yeah. I mean, I love early mornings. Um, my hope is to hire a chef, uh, or at least like a really strong sous chef who, um, is excited to grow into that role. Cause while I'm happy to be on the line. I also understand it's probably not the, the most useful position for me to occupy anymore, yeah. right? Like make space, move, move, you know, grow and move on and open yeah. things up. Um, so my hope is that as we build a team together, I'll be able to share the experience that I've had, uh, without kind of holding on to the, all the reins of power cool. that, that exists in the restaurant. Can you shout out a few restaurants that you're really loving? A lot of our listeners will be visiting New York or visit yeah. New York. I would love to get a few of your your, your favorites. Man, well, I, I live in Carroll Gardens. I've lived there for basically the whole time. I've been in New York um, for 12 plus years. And so there's a lot of neighborhood joints there that I love. Yemen Cafe is yeah. one of the spots I always recommend up on Atlantic Avenue. I, no. we, we used to live in Cobble Hill, so I think of everything basically from like Red yeah. Hook to Atlantic. I used to live at First in Court for 17 years. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I'm so, third in Court. Yeah, so, so right we there. were neighbors. I can't believe you look familiar in the way that maybe we were at the <laughs> yeah. gym together right, right, or right. something on the street, but yeah, I, I, that's my old neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great spot. I mean, Caputo's yep. is right there. I yep. go there for all, not a restaurant, but um, amazing Italian specialty shop. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Long Island Bar. My friend Joel owns that spot, and mm-hmm. it's in a, a great place for a drink and, and a burger. Uh, big fan of Court Street Grocers, as I told you on the elevator yeah. up. I went to S&P, their new spot today, which was excellent, just as it should be. Yeah. Can't um, wait to try that. Yeah. Um, yeah, big fan of uh, Dirt Candy, Amanda. I really yep. admire um, both on a food side, but also on a on an impact side. Um, she's done so, so much incredible work there. You know, it's... <laughs> I'm going to forget like a million restaurants that, you're, you're <laughs> that I love. Some great but, ones. Um, 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 we had Eli Sussman on the show and yeah, we yeah. talked about uh, Amanda Cohen specifically. I wanted to bring her up because I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, for somebody who just missed winning the beard for New York, I mean, mm-hmm. she's doing so many cool things at Dirt Candy, both in the kitchen, but also as yeah. a as a member of the community. Yeah, yeah. Glad you brought I got a shout out Insa also, yeah. uh, which my friend Young runs and we host tables of contents events there uh, pretty regularly and just one of my favorite spots for Korean barbecue and karaoke. Super fun place. It's uh, Evan, we asked all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you create a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would that book be? Wow. Well, if I didn't have any restrictions, I almost certainly would never finish that kind of book. I would just keep (laughs) going forever. The the good thing about deadlines is you will finish. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But I, I... I'm really, you know, the tables of contents idea really animates me. And I think kind of a very broad exploration of food and literature would be a super interesting thing to work on. But the book idea that I've been rolling around in my head a lot uh, that I think would be fun and uh, could happen with those kind of lack of limitations is a choose your own adventure cookbook, oh, sort of in the model of those choose your own adventure that. stories when, I don't know if you read them when you're, when you're oh, younger. Of course, but yeah. Absolutely. You know, turn to turn to page sixty three. Yeah. If you make this choice in the grocery store, or turn to page eighty nine for this choice. So we'll, we'll see. If we You're can the put one that to do this. I think. This, this <laughs> I, th- I think it makes sense. You know, for for a TOC. Yeah. For a, yeah, for a TOC book or for any book, I love this. Evan Hansor, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Matt, thanks so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.